Global poverty is one of the world's most vexing problems. For decades, billions of dollars have been raised, donated, and spent on poverty efforts with little long-term success or gains. Is there a better way to improve lives and sustain freedom and prosperity? The answer may be found in what is called the prosperity paradox. Lean in and learn how innovation can lift nations out of poverty and propel entrepreneurs to sustainable success on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? I'm very excited about this episode of Therefore What. We're going to talk about a new book by Clayton Christensen, Ifosa Ojomo, and Karen Dillon, The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty. And we're very excited today to be joined by Ifosa and Karen. Ifosa works side-by-side with Clayton Christensen as a senior fellow at the Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, where he leads the organization's global prosperity practice. Uh, His work has been published in the Harvard Business Review, the Guardian, Quartz, and a host of other places. He's a graduate with an MBA from Harvard Business School in 2015. Karen Dillon is the former editor of the Harvard Business Review and co-author of the New York Times bestseller, How Will You Measure Your Life and Competing Against Luck? Uh, She is a senior research editor for Global Prosperity at the Christensen Institute and a graduate of Cornell. Uh, We're very excited to have both Ifosa and Karen with us in studio. This is a a topic that I am super excited about. The book's extraordinary uh, because it talks about the principles and innovation in a way that lifts people out of poverty. Uh, We know that there have been billions and billions of dollars uh, funneled all around the world trying to improve the plight of those that are trapped in poverty. Uh, And you took a very different approach to it. Uh, So Ifosa, let's start with you. Uh, Where did this all begin? Yeah, thanks, Boyd. Uh, It's really good to be here. Um, I think for me, this story began about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I was living in Wisconsin at the time. I stumbled upon a book. I read about uh, 10-year-old girl in the book. Uh, her name was Amarech. And she's from Ethiopia. She had to wake up every morning at 3 a.m., uh, fetch firewood, uh, walk miles, sell in the market. And I was thinking about what I was doing when I was 10, and her story really gripped me. And at that time, I realized I had to do something about it. I didn't know exactly what, but I got some friends together. We started a nonprofit organization. I went to Nigeria, which is where I'm originally from. And we started building wells, uh, giving out microloans, doing a few other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Boyd, we built uh, like five uh, wells and virtually all those wells broke down. Um, and so something that started with such excitement and enthusiasm really ended with, you know, sort of broken, broken wells and yeah. broken dreams is how I describe it. <laughs> and I said, I got to figure out a better way to do this. Yeah. Um, and that's what led me to Harvard Business School. And um, at Harvard, I met uh, Professor Clay Christensen and took his course. And his course really has a way of making you see the world differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and after I took the course, um, he said, hey, how about you come work with me and let's write a book about how innovation really can have a significant impact in lifting people out of poverty. And so that's sort of the Cliff Notes version of, of yeah. how we got here. And uh, we're very excited about the, about the book, The Prosperity yeah. Paradox. Yeah, Karen- 
Aaron, you've done a lot of the deep dive research uh, over the years. Uh, as you started down this this path, uh, what were some of the things that surprised you early on as you were getting going? What were some of the findings? What were some of the things you thought, wow, that's that's just not how I thought this was going to play out? I, there was many things, actually, but I think I was probably most surprised and awed um, by what some of these individual entrepreneurs and innovators were able to accomplish in truly amazingly difficult circumstances. Yeah. The fact that enormous growth and opportunity and the creation of something in what you would say would be some of the most inhospitable places in the world to do business, that, that really did surprise me that there were some really fabulous success stories where you would never think to look. Mm, fantastic. That's great. Uh, so I want to go back to the wells here. <laughs> go <laughs> okay. back to the well, the well that went dry. Uh, because we, we often talk about this uh, this idea that often in these kinds of projects, mm. uh, you you run out of energy before you run out of opportunity. Mm. Uh, and and innovation plays such an important role in terms of how do you actually do something that is sustainable? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many things that start big, start grand, uh, but they're just not sustainable. So what did you learn about that? Well, let me, um, if, if we take a step back, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll explain what I learned through the lens of uh, an idea that we write about in the book. Yeah. Uh, it's actually the title of chapter four. It's called Push Versus Pull, A Tale of Two Strategies. See, <clears throat> Boyd, when I walked into that community, I saw, the first thing I saw was a group of women who were by the banks of a river washing uh, clothes. And I came to learn that there was no water in their village. And so they'd walk miles, uh, a lot of times with their kids, to go fetch water um, to take back to the community or to wash clothes. And instantly, like, I knew the answer to the problem. It was build a well. I mean, I just knew it. And so raised money, got some friends together. We, we did that. We built a well. But a few months later, the well broke down. I was very well intentioned, and a lot of my friends were. But we call that strategy a push strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is essentially where uh, organizations design programs that are well-intentioned, but they go into communities and they really get at the symptoms of the problems. They, mm-hmm. they focus on the symptoms and not the root cause. Um, and so they push solutions onto the communities. And a different strategy we talk about, which has innovation at the core, uh, is really what we call a pull strategy of yeah. development. And I'll, I'll illustrate the story here and how it differs uh, with uh, an example using instant noodles. I don't know if you like noodles, Boyd, but I, I love me some noodles. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, I lived in Japan. I can, I can, I can school you well, on all kinds of noodles. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, so, so in 1988, right? 1988. Yeah, I think it's 30 years ago, roughly. Nigeria was much worse uh, off than it is today. I mean, we were under a military regime. Um, oh, about 80 percent of the population lived on less than two dollars a day. Uh, mm-hmm. We didn't have electricity infrastructure. Uh, transportation, uh, um, telecommunications even. So many of the infrastructures you'd look at a country for and say, I'm going to go in and invest, we didn't have. But these two brothers, they looked at Nigeria, and instead of looking at all these deficiencies that they had, they said, you know what? What if we introduce a a, a food that's very easy to cook, that's flavorful, uh, and that you pair it with uh, with an egg or something like that for some protein, and that would uh, be somewhat a delicious, nutritious uh, meal. And so they decided to uh, bring in instant noodles to Nigeria. Well, you got to understand, this, this is West Africa now. We're not, like you said, you, you lived in Japan. Um, we thought noodles were worms for, at first, at first we really did. Um, but they persevered and they said, look, we believe that we can fit the taste uh, to, to, to these folks. And they did. Um, and I ate those noodles growing up, Indomie uh, noodles. But here's the kicker. 
1995, they start building manufacturing plants in Nigeria. Well, in order to build the plants, I said we didn't have electricity. So they built electricity plants. They built uh, water treat- treatment facilities. And then they realized, oh my, when I, when I want to get the product from the plant to the warehouse, uh, sometimes I send 100 cartons and only 80 makes it. So they said we have to take care of our distribution. So they built warehouses. Mm. Uh, they bought a bunch of trucks, hired a bunch of drivers. Um, and then education, they started thinking, well, we need engineers, we need mechanics, we need electricians, we need all these guys. Um, the education system wasn't that good. So they started training people so that they could fill these jobs. And that's a fundamentally different strategy than a push strategy that right. goes in and solves, uh, tries to solve the symptoms of the problem. This is a pull strategy because because of the market that they created, they were able to pull in so many things into the economy. Mm. And what's fascinating about that is we see similarities between that pull strategy uh, of what the noodle guys did and what entrepreneurs like Henry Ford did, yeah. um, Isaac Singer, who really helped get America where it is today. Yeah, fantastic. That's great. Karen, I want to I want to have you kind of give us a, a framing for the prosperity paradox. Give us the, the core. Ephosos just set, shared one of those important principles, the push versus pull strategy. Uh, give us kind of the, uh, the high level look. What is that paradox? And then uh, how do we start applying those principles? Sure. So the prosperity paradox refers to the fact that, as Afosa was talking about, you see poverty primarily through the lack of resources, lack yeah. of water, lack of education, lack of health care. We see what's lacking, and we so desperately want to help. We want to solve it, give, you know, right. pr- provide those resources, and thus we'll solve poverty. The paradox is the thing we're most naturally inclined to do, and the thing, as you said earlier, we've been spending billions of dollars for years and years and years trying to do is solve, is solving poverty isn't actually going to solve poverty in the long run. It's going right. to might make it easier, it might make it better. It doesn't turn into prosperity, which is a self-sustaining engine that mm. really can grow countries, individuals' lives, the prospects for everyone to have a better life. So the paradox is that what we've been doing for so long and seems so logical is not the way we believe to solve it long-term. Long-term, you have to think of the question differently, not how do we solve poverty, how do we generate prosperity? They're two different things. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating. And I'm going to ask you a slightly political question. This is not a political book. This is not a political program. But it seems to me that that the United States for many years has taken a similar approach uh, in terms of freedom and democracy, where they kind of, as a as a policy strategy, they'll go and they'll dump a bunch of money into a, mm. a country and, and prop up a, a little democracy. Mm. And that works for a little while, but eventually things start getting stolen. The distribution doesn't work. Mm. Uh, it breaks down and they start sliding back towards socialism or communism. So then the United States goes in and dumps in more money and try to prop it back up. Uh, but it seems to me that, that what you're saying in this prosperity paradox is that it, it really is the, the entrepreneurship, it's the innovation that ultimately drives freedom. And if I'm totally out in left field, you can say, Boyd, you're way out in left field. Well, look, Boyd, um, I wish there were many other ways to slice it. But if you don't have the entrepreneur at the center of your economic development policy, it's incredibly difficult to get a country where there's prosperity and there are freedoms. Mm. Um, you know, we, we, to some degree at least, we celebrate China over the past 40 years. You you had a country that where, that had G- GDP per capita of about $100 a year to now over $8,000. But what happened? The umbrella for the country is still communistic, but you see the entrepreneurial drive and energy 
energy. Mm-hmm. And you see many uh, of these companies now gaining ground. Similar thing happened in South Korea. We see Samsung, yeah. uh, Kia, we see Hyundai and Posco, all these companies. And so it's incredibly difficult to have countries that where, where there are increased freedoms without investing in entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And so if we care about freedom in this country and many other parts of the world, I would say, man, let us figure out how to get resources to entrepreneurs in those countries. Guarantee that there'd be democracy and freedom everywhere. Yeah. How do you see that, Karen? I, I agree. I think that, uh, it, I mean, it's basically it boils down to, you know, teach, teach a man to fish. Yeah. It, it's when, when the innovation and the growth and the prosperity comes from within, mm-hmm. uh, it becomes self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. It's not sort of just given from the outside. And, and that's really powerful. We know that through history. Lots of examples, the United States being one of the best ones, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We were as, as poor as Bangladesh is today in the late, the late 1800s. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the fact that we forget how far America's come and all of the freedoms and all the things that we do enjoy now is a consequence of that. And that the start of that engine really was innovation and innovators, great innovators who began the chain of events that led to America's prosperity. Yeah. Uh, I always say that the founding fathers were, were really just a bunch of entrepreneurs <laughs> who were, who were try- tired of being overtaxed and overregulated and really just wanted to, a new, to a do the business things. model. Yeah, yeah, new business model. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, very good. Karen, I'm going to stick with you for a second. Uh, share with me uh, maybe one of the example uh, from the book or some of these experiences that you've all had in doing this research uh, that maybe was one of those light bulb innovation moments for you where you could kind of connect those dots a little bit. Sure. I think my favorite example in the book is a company called MicroInsure, um, which is a um, it's a company. I'm not going to call it an insurance company because it's sort of the middleman between insurance companies mm. and customers and, and, as I'll explain, mobile phone companies. But it's a company that's figured out that some of the most impoverished parts of the world, countries in Africa mm. and parts of India, um, have a single economic event can wipe out a family, a, a town, a community, a, a, a fire, a disaster, uh, something, someone having AIDS and dying. Right. Um, those can be life-changing events. And the, the, those people are never given the opportunity for insurance for anything. Mm-hmm. And so the entrepreneur who started this, a guy called Richard Leffley, just observed, looking at the actuarial tables, where the most natural disasters happen versus who we actually insure. And it just seemed so wrong to him that we can't figure out some way to help people who probably need insurance more mm-hmm. than anybody. And the fact of the matter is that you don't need Western dollar levels of insurance to make right. a life-changing amount. Right. So th- this entrepreneur figured out in really cool ways that we could, he can provide micro-insurance by getting mobile phone comp- companies who wanted to sort of upsell their customers, you know, a few more minutes. Mm-hmm. And as part of the a bonus, when you buy a few more minutes, we'll give you insurance, basic insurance mm-hmm. for the month. Mm-hmm. Um, then in turn, he collects that and then they connect it with an insurance company. And so for what seems like no extra outlay of cash to those customers, they suddenly start to get the idea and get the reality of insurance that can make a huge difference in their yeah. life. And I'll give you a specific example that I think is just so groundbreaking. He recognized that for so many people in these really poor parts of the world, getting medical care when they needed it required cash and they didn't have a lot of cash. And, and he started, um, he met a woman whose child had died when he had, she had taken her to a local hospital and didn't get a chance to see a medical professional for days because it was a public hospital. Mm. And she finally asked in desperation, can I get my child treated elsewhere? And they said, yes, there's a private clinic you know, X miles away, but you'll need $5. They will charge you $5. So the woman was so poor, she went home, left her child there in the hospital and sold her possession so she could come back with, here's my $5. And by the time she came back, her child had died in mm. the hallway of the hospital. It's just heartbreaking. Yeah. So he has created a product that has had millions and millions of, of subscribers now where choosing only your mobile phone is the connection. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about you, but your mobile phone number, but I 
know that you've signed up for our insurance. Um, If you have been hospitalized for two days, we will send you $50. So knowing that you'll get $50, you could borrow the money for a day or two if you needed to, but you could get your child seen or yourself seen. And so $50 to us is a copay, right? Right. $50 for that market is life-changing, the difference Mm -hmm. between getting treatment or not. That's created a whole new market in a place that you would never think would be a fertile territory for insurance products. Wow. That's fantastic. That's great. So what's, uh, what stands out for you in some of these uh, stories and experiences? Well, Boyd, I, I moved to the U.S. from Nigeria about 19 years ago. And when I moved, I tell people I was never going back. I mean, I, the way I explain it is sort of like you, you get a get out of jail free card, you get out of prison. Why would I ever willingly go back? Right. Because I just thought we were, you know, there was no infrastructure. The governance was not good and, and all those things. But then we started doing research for this book and I realized, um, wow, that's sort of where we all came from. Yeah. You, the United States was extremely poor at one point. Europe was extremely poor. Uh, life expectancy in these regions were barely 40, 45 years. And so for me, learning about all these entrepreneurs who, in the midst of difficult circumstances, were able to create businesses that started this sort of engine of economic prosperity was the most inspiring part uh, of writing this book. And so, you know, I'm you know, I, I, w- I wish I could say it was this entrepreneur or that, but I, I think for me, this book, if I had to pick one word it represents, is hope. It, it, it has given mm. me hope that even in our difficult circumstances, many countries in the world that are poor, that are struggling, that are corrupt, that don't have infrastructure, oh my, you can still make it. Yeah. And that's huge for me. Yeah. Just having, the, just having that hope is, uh, yeah. is a big part of the, the process for sure. Karen, let's talk about this uh, idea that you talk about in the book that uh, not all innovation is equal because that's an that's an important part of this whole thing, isn't mm-hmm. it? It is indeed. So um, innovation is a word that's very broad and people use it to mean lots of things. And of course, our co-author Clayton Christensen is famous it's, for the term <laughs> disruptive right. innovation. So he partly he partly <laughs> triggered this complete obsession with the word innovation. But he has continued to think about innovation and what it, what it means to innovate and what types of innovation uh, companies really do in a way that's really helpful, I think. So the idea is that there are three broad types of innovation uh, that we just talk about in this book. And they all have important roles in in a company. There's something he calls efficiency innovation, which mm-hmm. is basically how do we make this product or service a little more efficiently so we can free up some cash capital yeah. so that mm-hmm. we can invest it in other things. And that's when you see um, manufacturing plants outsourced to Mexico or to parts of Asia. That's in the attempt to be more efficient and free right. up cash. Common thing, trying to make the company more profitable or invest in new opportunities. Uh, companies do it all the time. There's sustaining innovation, which is uh, heated seats in your car or mm-hmm. new color of, of the iPhone or, you know, new bells and whistles on whatever your product is. Keep the customers, maybe add a few more, maybe even charge a little bit more. Those are normal parts of doing business and, and keeping the company going on track. Sure. But those things are not going to catalytically move the needle. You're not going to create something wholly new, find entirely new customers from those two types of innovation generally. This third category is the one that will. And, and his focus on it has been, through his work with the FOSA, on how do we actually grow things, not just, you know, sustain, but but grow. So we've come up with this third category called market-creating innovation. And everything we describe in the book is a market-creating in- mm-hmm. innovation. It means there wasn't even a market there before. Mm-hmm. You didn't identify customers before. You didn't see prospects for building this business at all. But through your idea, your innovation, and the way you create the business model around it, I just explained the unique business model of 
the of the mobile phone company uh, and the insurance products, uh, you have been able to create a product or a service and, th- and thus a whole market. And then when you create a market, lots of good things happen. Mm-hmm. That's when we talked about that infrastructure and institutions right. get pulled in, things that are required for you to get your product or service out the door and then scale and grow. That has a really powerful knock-on effect in the economy in which you're operating and it, and it can begin to spread from there. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Um, so I, I want to spend just a, a minute just talking about Clayton and, and his work and, mm. and your interaction with him. Clearly one of the, the great thinkers of our time uh, and has approached, really had cha- has changed the way most business executives think about themselves and think about their businesses. Uh, give us a little be- behind the curtain, uh, Fosa, your experience working alongside Clayton on, on a project that uh, this is one of those projects I think will be a one we were, we're all going to look back on and say that that was a game changer moment. Yeah, no, thanks, Boyd. I, I think Professor Christensen is brilliant. I mean, I, there's no debating that. Uh, but I, I think what strikes me the most about him is um, his compassion and mm-hmm. kindness. Um, it, it really is uh, out of this world because to have somebody so brilliant like that be so compassionate, kind, and generous with his time, um, with his brand, if you will, um, and to pull you into his circle to say, Afosa, what can I do for you? Mm-hmm. Like, how, how can I help you be better? It's truly, truly amazing. And so in writing this book, um, that was sort of the, the vibe he brought in every day. Um, it was, he didn't see it as like his book that we were helping um, him, you know, co-author. He was like, this is our book. This mm-hmm. is our stuff. And so let's go out and, and write the best book we can uh, because our names are going to be on it. And then when you work with that kind of person, there's no way it doesn't infect how you begin to uh, see life uh, and treat other people. Uh, I mean, it's it, he has changed my life. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, and, and I love so rarely anymore do we hear leaders described as kind and compassionate. <laughs> yeah. uh, and yet I, I think you, you nailed it. I think that is at the, the center of yeah. the center of, of Clayton Christensen. So I appreciate you mm-hmm. sharing that. Karen, what about you? I, I would second all of those things. I, um, I have, this is the third book I've had the pleasure to work on with him. And I think I wrote in the first acknowledgments that I ever wrote with him that Clay is, of course, brilliant, but but he's a good man, not just some of the time, not much of the time, but all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he he is he is really a man who wants to do good in the world, and he shares yeah. that all the time. It's his, it's his every part of him. It, it, the, all of his work is for that reason. Um, and the other thing I think that is really powerful about Clay is because he's a teacher, naturally. Mm-hmm. He's a professor. He's not my professor, so I don't, I don't call him <laughs> professor. But um, he has a really rare gift. I was the editor of Harvard Business Review, worked yeah. with many brilliant academics. Sometimes brilliant academics have a hard time explaining how how they got from point A to point D, right, right. or uh, the you know the complexity of the idea is not easy for the average smart person to understand. Clay is a natural teacher, and so mm. I just absolutely loved working with him because he helps you to understand complicated things in ways that become really meaningful. Mm. And he he won't leave it until you get it and understand it. Yeah. So working with someone who's both a good man and brilliant and a teacher is a really powerful combination. And the other thing is he's really humble. He genuinely believes he can learn something from everybody. So mm, when you're in a room that. with him talking about or he meets you in the hallway, he is as interested in what you have to say as whatever he might have to say. And mm. um, it's it's really fun to be around yeah. him because it's he's very rare and very special. Yeah. Oh, that's fan- that's fantastic. Well, as we come down the home stretch here, Karen, I want to ask you one question. I, I, I did a, a podcast a few weeks ago with Ann Snyder, uh, who has done a, a book for the Philanthropy Roundtable, uh, talking about where philanthropists are investing their money, what kind of projects and, and things they're doing and 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 she really made the case that you know it's it's in organizations that are building
building character and societal fabric uh, that it should be going. And, and what you've laid out in this book uh, is, is really in that same alignment. But what do you think that philanthropists and businesses and organizations who are looking to solve the, the poverty problem, what should they be doing uh, based on what you've come up with uh, in the book? So that obviously is a very worthy thing to do, and it's important and powerful um, to do that. But I, I guess I just can't emphasize enough how that, I think, usually follows the success of an innovation taking root. So mm-hmm. it's it's in, in the sequence of things, it's usually most successful when it follows there already being something taking root that's going to take off. And so uh, those in our push-pull language, those things are pulled into the society mm-hmm. very successfully when there's a reason that they need to be pulled in. Yeah. When they are just offered, you know, often right. by outsiders, they less likely take hold and become part of the culture. The culture has to be built from within. And, right. and innovation can be, we think, the catalyst to ignite that. Therefore, what? Well, we, we always close the program. Uh, it's called Therefore What for a reason. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm going to let each of you take a whack at the, the Therefore What question. Uh, and that is people have been listening to us for about 25 minutes now. What's your what's your Therefore What? What do you hope people think different? What do you hope people do different uh, as a result of listening today and, and uh, reading your book? Karen, let's go to you first. I guess I would say therefore <laughs> uh, have hope and see opportunity in places that you might have in despair after watching years and years and years of the needle knot moving. Therefore, have hope that it is possible, but you need to see the world through a different set of lenses. You need to see this as strangely fertile opportunity uh, in places that you might not have imagined. And you can have hope if you know that what is possible that we've chronicled in the book is possible anywhere. Fosa, you're therefore what moment? I'm going to second Karen's (laughs) therefore what, just so I could ram it down their throat so that they, yeah. um, Leave no doubt, right? That's right. (laughs) Leave no doubt. Therefore, um, because there's a concept in the book called non-consumption that we explain. Um, therefore, when you see a place that's not consuming something, be it healthcare, education, um, electricity, whatever it is, just see it differently through a different lens, that that's an opportunity for you to create a market there that can help a lot of people begin to consume these things so they can lead better lives. So I'm a second Karen's therefore. All right. You guys are a good tag team partnership <laughs> there. That's you. great. Well, we appreciate you being with us uh, here on Therefore What. The book is The Prosperity Paradox how innovation can lift nations out of poverty. It is a must-read. Uh, if you want to do good, uh, if you want to be good, uh, and if you want to find out how to, to really amplify that and, and leverage and parlay uh, good things out there in the world, it's a it's just a beautiful roadmap. So thanks for being with us today. Thank, Thank you, you so boys. much for having us. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, the opinion editor at the Deseret News. Thanks for joining us on Therefore What.